Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of worship, for the gift of singing, for the gift of the musicians that lead us, and we want to thank you for the gift of your word. We ask now that as we spend a few moments in scripture, you would silence all of the worries, all of the anxiety, all of the distraction, all of the things we're excited for, just everything, help us to be fully present to your spirit now. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. I want to begin by showing you a picture that most of you, if you've turned on your television at all this week, have probably seen. Do you guys recognize this young man? So here's the story if you don't know what happened, and then you're going to see how all of this makes sense. So this is an 18-year-old young man. His name is Kendrick Castillo. And if I remember the details correctly, it was in Denver, the school where... So here's what happens. There was this young man who said he was going to shoot up the school. They were in a classroom, and this young man, Kendrick Castillo, saw him pull out the weapon, and then he jumped towards him. He ended up getting shot, and Kendrick ended up dying But in the process, he literally saved everyone else that was in danger of losing their life that day. Okay, so just think about this. When you were 18 years old, would that be your first reaction to help and save the lives of other people? Now, I want to show you what his mom said about him. He was selfless. That's what my son was, and it got him killed. But listen to what she said. But he saved others. Just let that ring in your mind. He saved others. Another student, I, and, and I saw this on, I guess, the evening news, and this is what one of the other students said. He died for us. Now we must live for him. Just, just let that sink in to your consciousness here for just a moment. You know, those are the words that we usually use for who? For Jesus. And yet, what we find in the life of an 18-year-old, I mean, he was an adult legally, but he was still a child. And we find that he had it within himself to do something that literally changed the lives of the students in his classroom and probably beyond that. And the reality is, is that one person's actions can change everything. You know, we may think that sometimes the things that we do don't matter all that much, or, or we may think that, well, you know, what good is it if I do something if no one else is going to do something? But what we find in this story, unfortunately, and I'm, and I'm sharing this story this morning because I think it's important for us to remember that even though there is evil in the world, there is still goodness in the world. You know, we get so used to focusing on only the bad things in life, but we forget that within the fallen world, there are people who are living their life in such a way that are actually making a difference in the world and literally changing people's lives. Because one person's actions have the potential to change the world. And we know this. When we read John 3.16, what what does it say? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that everyone who believes in him may not what? Perish, but have eternal life. And verse 17 says, Indeed, God did not send the son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. The actions of one man can change the world. 
You know, it's funny. We've all memorized the verse, John 3.16, but I feel like it's not something we ever preach about, isn't it? I mean, specifically. I mean, we talk about God's grace and the crucifixion and his resurrection, but we very rarely sit and talk about John 3.16. It's almost as though it's become so well-known that we don't even need to worry about it. But this morning, we're beginning a new sermon series, and the new sermon series, I've called it The Cultivated Life. And I'll explain in a few moments as I keep preaching why. But here's what I've been wanting to do for a couple of years now. I've been wanting to develop a discipleship course, a discipleship track that everyone could go through so that we could all be on the same page about what it means that as an Orange Seventh-day Adventist member or regular attendee, what does it mean that we want to be disciples or that we're called to be disciples of Christ? And I've had this desire in my mind and with just the overwhelming demands and responsibilities of ministry life. It's just been really hard for me to schedule this 12-week course on like a Monday night. And then I think to myself, are people going to come on a Monday night? They work all day. I know you all work hard. Some of you have to commute. And it's just like, are we going to all show up? And then I thought to myself, if I do it on a Monday night and only like 10 people show up, what about the rest of the church who can't hear the message that we're trying to preach? And so what I've decided to do is I said, well, let's try this. We have a video, you know, it's, our sermons are always recorded, so what we're going to do is do, it's an 11-part sermon series on what it looks like to be a disciple of Jesus. And I'm calling it the cultivated life because when we think about cultivating something, we think about a garden. And when we think about a garden, to cultivate the land, does, do things grow overnight in a garden? Like, you don't have to ever have a garden to know that it takes time, it takes intention, it takes effort. It takes diligence. You know, Jesus talks about our heart almost like a soil, and either your soil is receptive and willing to follow Christ, or it's not. And the reason that we're using the word cultivate is because as, as we journey in our life of faith, your life of faith must be cultivated on a daily, in a daily manner. And so I think in the weekly email, you'll probably have the 11-part series, but because it's going to go through the summer, um, there's going to be interruptions. So like we'll have an interruption for VBS. Um, I think there's something else at some point in the summer. So it's not going to be 11 continuous weeks, but we are going to be doing that. They will be available, God willing, always on online in video form and in audio form. And um, hopefully beginning next week, we'll actually have some other kind of forms attached to it so you can kind of work through it yourself because I truly believe that it's important for us to be clear about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. You know, so many times I, you know, I talk to people and they say, my spiritual life isn't what I, I think it should be. And, and, I, and the more that I ask, what people are really asking is, I don't really know how to be a follower of Jesus. And so what we're going to try to do through this 11-part series is to really walk through what does it mean to live a life as a follower of Jesus, and then how do you cultivate your faith? And so this first part sermon is really designed to lay a foundation for what everything else will come to follow afterwards. And the central text for this is, John three sixteen and 17, that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that everyone who believes in him would not perish but have eternal life because God doesn't come to condemn but rather he comes to save. And because the actions of Jesus change the world, we want to continue to be changed into his image. Now in the book, The Sonship of Christ, this is written by a friend of mine and here's what he says. 
The crucifixion of Christ was ordained before the ages as an eternal purpose, residing in God's omniscient mind, all-knowing, omniscient mind. There is a sense in which humans were chosen in Christ before the foundations of the world. Then at the point, then at the point of the incarnation, Jesus came and accomplished our chosen status by becoming one of us, merging human nature with the divine. Paul writes to Titus that we live in hope of the eternal life which God, who cannot lie, promised before time began. You see, when we talk about following the way of Jesus and being a disciple of Jesus, what we're saying is we want to be connected to the thing that was always there. We want to be connected to the Christ that was there at the foundations of the earth and who at the foundations of the earth already had you in mind to spend eternity with you. You see, we believe in a God who lays out the foundations of the earth and then walks alongside you on a daily basis. So if you have your Bibles and you want to underline this, Hebrews 6, 19, uh, actually it's Hebrews 6, 19 and 20. The writer of Hebrews says, we have this hope, a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters the inner shrine behind the curtain where Jesus, a forerunner, of our, a forerunner on our behalf, has entered, having become a high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Now let's just break this down because if, here's the thing, if we don't understand this morning's message then the other 10 messages, like, you'll, maybe you'll like them, maybe you'll find something useful, but it's not going to stick. Because the foundation for why we become followers of Jesus is not because we want to be better people. We don't want to be more moral, we don't want to be more holy, we don't want to be sinless. Like, like, those are all noble aspirations, but we don't follow Jesus just so that we can feel better about ourselves. We follow Jesus because we are compelled by his love and there is no other way. It's like that quote in the beginning, he died for us, so now we want to live for ourselves? We want to live for our own glory? No, he died for us, Jesus died for us, and now we want to live our lives for him. Paul uses the words that we are to be a living sacrifice, a living offering. Our lives are to be lived in such a way that they can reach the presence of God and God will be pleased. But we don't do this just because we want to be better people. And so Hebrews tells us we have this hope, a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. This hope, this anchor goes into the inner shrine behind the curtain. Now, if you've never read this before, just a 30-second breakdown this is, this is, they're like talking about what was happening in the Old Testament here. In the Old Testament, there was a sanctuary. And in the sanctuary, it was, there's all sorts of compartments, but the parts that matter for us this morning is that there was this holy place, that's what they called it, holy place. And then there was a curtain, and behind the curtain was the most holy place. And the reason it was called that, because that's where they had the Ark of the Covenant and only one person could go into the most holy place, and that was the high priest. Melchizedek was a high priest and king. Only he could go in, and it was only once a year on the Day of Atonement. And the, the idea behind it is that when the high priest goes in, he is, he is asking God to forgive the sins, not just of you individually, but to forgive the sins of the entire nation of Israel. 
Now in Hebrews, right, so they're talking about thousands of years in the past. They're like, they're calling up this image of this temple and this sanctuary. And the writer of Hebrews then says, Jesus, who is our anchor, the anchor of our soul, he is a forerunner, which means he comes before us and he enters into this most holy place, which again is the presence of God. And by being in the presence of God, Jesus is atoning and forgiving your sins. Right, so this is biblical imagery, all of it to say, John 3, 16, that God so loved the world that he, he came into the world that your sins might be forgiven. Your sins can only be forgiven by God. And Jesus being a part of the, tri- of the triune Godhead, Jesus brings forgiveness to your sins. He died, and now we must live for him. We have this hope You know, in Hebrews is the one that says faith is the assurance of things hoped for. Your hope is activated by your faith. And your faith is the convictions of the things you don't see. So it doesn't matter what's going on in the world, and it doesn't matter what happens in your circumstances. I mean, it matters some. But what matters more than all the other things in this life is your life of faith. You can't control anything else except how you choose to cultivate your daily life. If Jesus is the anchor of your soul and he is in the presence of God, then guess who else gets to come to the presence of God? You do. You do. In all of history, there's always a mediator to bring you to the presence of God or God is this distant God. But in our Christian faith, in the words of Jesus, he says, you can come to the Father on your own. You can come boldly before the throne of grace. You have access to God and you don't need anyone else to go through. You don't have to come to me to pray for you so that you can make sure that God hears your prayers. I know that that's something that we have often do and we sometimes we love it when pastors or elders or people pray for us because we do ascribe a little bit more holiness to the people in leadership. We do that. I do that. I ascribe holiness to people without even knowing it. But what Jesus tells us is that you don't need to go to anyone. You can go directly to the Father. And so the question that I have to ask you this morning is what have you anchored your soul to? Now I know we all want to answer the question that our soul is anchored to Christ and we are in Christ and Christ is in us and we want to believe that that is true. But for so many of us, if we really are honest with ourselves, We might say that we've anchored our soul to something that looks like Jesus, but isn't Jesus. You see, an anchor is the thing that keeps us safe. The reason the ships have anchors is because when stormy water comes or when waves come, when they drop that anchor, they can stay steady in the storm. They don't have to be moved to and fro, and they won't be drifting through the ocean, and the anchor is what keeps you secure. And we all give our lives to different things thinking that that is an anchor. Now, I'm going to give you a list. I pray that this will not be offensive, and so I would love to have a deeper conversation with you after church about this. But sometimes we anchor our soul to things that are good but are not Jesus. Let me give you this list, all right? If it's offensive, I don't mean it that way. Sometimes your anchor becomes your religion. You get so caught up in what your religion is or says, but you forget that your religion is really pointing to someone, which is Christ. 
Sometimes we can be so dogmatic in our beliefs that we pick fights with people and argue with people and we make our beliefs our anchor when the whole time Jesus would rather have us be kind and loving. Sometimes we anchor our soul to the safety of your position in the world. Maybe you're in a position of authority and power and you find security behind that and you anchor your soul to that. Sometimes we anchor our souls to material possessions or not even what we have, but we anchor our, our souls to the finances that we have, to the paychecks that we have coming to this. We anchor ourselves to our career or we anchor ourselves sometimes to our significant others. And all of these are good things. Nothing that I've mentioned is bad in and of itself, but all of the things that I just mentioned all should serve the purpose of honoring and glorifying God. Our religion, our beliefs, our position in the world, our material possessions, everything is to be oriented towards the presence of God. And so even good things, and I think most of us do anchor our souls to good things, but there is a danger that we might not be anchoring our souls to Christ. The only true anchor for your soul is Jesus because he is constant. He is the same yesterday. He is the same today. He will be the same tomorrow. You know, if you've ever been in an ocean, I mean, we're in Southern California. Most of us have been to the beach at least once in our lives. But what is the thing that happens when we go to the beach? We try to find a place where we can put our stuff down. We put our stuff down. We hide our keys or whatever it is. We dig a hole, cover it so that even if someone tries to rip you off, they can't find it, right, or something like that. And then what do you do? You go into the water, and what happens? You keep looking back at your stuff. You keep looking back at your stuff, and you think to yourself, today, I will not drift away from my stuff. You think that, right? Because what happens when you go into the ocean? You drift. You drift. You drift. So the last time I went to the ocean was, it was probably, it's probably been a year and a half or two years. I'm not a big beach person. But we decided to go in there, and we were in the water, and it was freezing because the Pacific Ocean is always cold. And we were with friends of ours, and so I said, okay, today I'm not going to drift. I'm going to keep my eye on our stuff because we were all in the water. But without even knowing it, I drifted. Now think about this. Like we are, like our feet are constantly touching the ground, like the, the sand, you know, in the ocean, right? Like we're not even that far into sea and it's easy for us to drift. Now imagine a boat that's in the open seas. It's easy for a ship to drift in open waters, but the anchor is what keeps it steady and safe. We could even say it this way, that an anchor is what keeps a ship from being shipwrecked in a storm So if Jesus is the anchor of your soul, Jesus will keep your life from being shipwrecked when difficult times come. But it's not just when bad times come. We often find that when things are really great, and I'm just talking from experience, so you can judge me all you want, but sometimes when things are great is we're not as close to Jesus as maybe we we would like to be. Sometimes when things are going so well, our prayers change. Sometimes when things are going so well, maybe our devotional lives don't work out because what happens when things go bad, it's like we come to the foot of the cross, we're constantly praying all day. You guys have have done this, I know. You're constantly coming to Jesus, but the moment that you turn and everything starts being a little bit better, then all of a sudden you're just like, oh yeah, everything's great, thanks Jesus. And you thank God and you think about him, but oftentimes our spiritual and devotional lives end up suffering So Jesus, as the anchor of your soul, also serves as a guide for your life. 
The Bible talks about Jesus as shepherd. Jesus is the one who leads you and guides you. The Bible talks about Jesus as being the word of God. And in Psalms, foreshadowing the day that Jesus would come to earth, he says that your light, your light is a light unto my feet and a path. Your word, sorry, is a light unto my path and a guide unto my way. Think about that. The psalmist knew that one day Jesus would come and he begins to put these things in there so that a couple of thousand years later, people will all of a sudden be like, whoa, Jesus is saying he's the word and the psalmist writes that the word is a light, like our, he's our guide, so Jesus is our guide. We all need a guide in this world. I'm gonna show you this picture. This is a picture of a Sherpa I think, unless Google failed me, but this is a picture of a Sherpa climbing Mount Everest. Now, whenever we think of Sherpas, I used to always think that a Sherpa was just a local. Is Mount Everest in Tibet? On one side of it. (laughs) Well, I always thought it was just the local people who have acclimated to the altitude, and then they just help you carry all of your gear to as far up as possible, and then you go the rest of the way. That's what we always think of as Sherpas because that's what we see. But in reality, a Sherpa is a guide. And the guide is carrying, when they go up Mount Everest and other mountains, is carrying the majority of the load, but he's also leading. So if Jesus is a guide, your shepherd, he is carrying the heavy load of your sin, but he's also guiding you and leading you forward. And so I ask the question, what is your soul anchored to? Is your soul anchored to the fact that you just want Jesus to be your ticket to heaven? Or is Jesus the anchor of your soul because you want simply to be in his presence? You see, anytime you go into any kind of relationship, if you are wanting to get something out of that relationship, eventually you will be disappointed and that relationship will fail you. It is unhealthy to go into a relationship expecting for the other person to complete you or to make you happy or to make you whole or to be the best part of you. If you go into a relationship looking for something, you will always be disappointed. And it's the same way with our relationship with Jesus. If we are just going to Jesus because we don't want to spend an eternity extinct if we're just going to Jesus because we don't want to die the eternal death, and if we're just going to Jesus because we just want to get to heaven one day, that is a selfish faith. And it's not real faith. But if you're coming to Jesus as the anchor of your soul because you simply are drawn to him and want to have a relationship with him, then not only are you assured salvation, but your life in this age will be an abundant life. I hope this is a hard teaching for you. I hope it offends you a little bit because these are real talk, real questions about the motivation for your faith. In the book, In the Name of Jesus by Henry Nouwen, he writes, I came face to face with the simple question, did becoming older bring me any closer to Jesus? After 25 years of priesthood, I found myself praying poorly living isolated from others and very much preoccupied with the burning issues of my daily life. Think about this. This is a man 
who taught for 25 years at Yale and Harvard, who literally, Henry Nouwen, has literally shaped the lives of thousands of pastors, of priests, of spiritual leaders, of elders. Like this guy's writings, if you've never read Henry Nouwen, go deep to the core of the motivations of your heart. And even he says, I found myself anchored to the wrong things. So much so that he, he resigned from being a professor at Harvard, which some would say would be the pinnacle of your, of your career, to become the pastor and chaplain of a community of people with mental handicaps up until the day that he died. Because he knew that he was allowing the anchor of his soul to be something that wasn't eternal, and he knew that God was calling him to serve the least of these. And so we asked the question, why do we love Jesus Is it a selfish kind of love or is it the kind of love where Jesus first loved us and the only response we have is to love Jesus back? So I want to look at a story in scripture. John chapter 21. Are you guys still tracking with me? This is a lot of information. John chapter 21, verse 15. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, Do you love me more than these? And he said, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my lambs. A second time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter felt hurt. Clearly, he forgot that he denied Jesus three times, but that's, that's, let's let that one go. <laughs> Peter felt hurt because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything, and you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. So I want to ask this question. Do you love, love Jesus? Like if, like if this world was all you had, And there was no promise of eternal life, which I know is hard for us to imagine because obviously we believe that. But if there was no eternal life, if this life was all that there was, would a relationship with Jesus be enough? And that's a question you have to wrestle with. Because if the answer is, well, no, I want to live in eternity and in heaven with Jesus forever, then I would say you need to check your motivations. But if you say, yeah, like a relationship with Jesus is more than enough. God will take care of eternity for you. If you say that a relationship with Jesus is enough, then you will orient and change your life in such a way that everything will be pointed towards Christ. Colossians tells us that Jesus is before all things and holds all things together. Is Jesus before all things in your life? Or is Jesus just a secondary character in your life. You see, this sermon series on discipleship, if Jesus isn't before all things in your life, a lot of this is going to be pointless. You'll learn stuff, I promise you that, because I'm going to work hard. But it may not have the effect that you're wanting if the motivation for your belief in Jesus isn't purely selfish. When Jesus asks Peter, do you love me? He's asking you that very question this morning. Do you love me? Loving Jesus is connected to serving others. 
And so I guess the way that you could ask is, when you see people in need, when you see people just within your life that have needs, how are you treating other people in your life? Because see, the answer to whether you love Jesus is how you treat other people. They're intricately connected and you can't take them apart. You can't say, I love Jesus, and then be a jerk. You can't say, I love Jesus, and then talk bad about people. You can't say, I love Jesus, and, and not be kind or serve others. Now, you could say you love Jesus, but I would say that instead of it being love, it would be more of an infatuation in Jesus. You love what he stands for. You love what he can give you. But if it's not, if he's not changing your life, if your life isn't being changed because you would rather do things your own way, then I would, I would venture to say that you don't really love Jesus. So why am I being so hard on everyone this morning? <laughs> because this is a question that I have to constantly ask myself on a daily basis. Why do I love Jesus? Do I truly love Jesus? Is Jesus enough for me? And I would say that the answer is always yes. But the prayer that follows that question is, but God help me love you more. May my love be unselfish. You know, we love Jesus because John tells us that God loved us first. Now, my life has changed in so many more ways than I ever can imagine when, we, when our little daughter, Everly, was born, I guess it was six, almost six weeks ago now. The most amazing, the most wonderful experience of my life, and it has taught me so much about the love and the heart of God. You know, my, our friend Bob always says that the day your child is born is the end, I, I don't know how he says it, but it's the, it's the end of of you, something like that, yeah. Which sounds terrible, but you know what he's saying is like, your life revolved around yourself even if you were married. But the day a child is born, you wait longer to eat even if you're hungry if you're holding your baby. You don't go to the gym for four or five weeks because you don't want to leave your wife with your little tiny baby who likes to cry which means that you get a lot less sleep, but you have to function at the same level because you have a little tiny baby. And then you change a ton of diapers, and then the baby will go to the bathroom as you're changing the diaper, and sometimes it'll get on your clothes. And then you don't even change your clothes for hours because you're still trying to, you know, be with the baby, and it doesn't even matter. It's like if we can love a child... And, and then you don't even get frustrated about it. You just love it and you laugh and you just say, this is the best, most wonderful experience of my life. I can't. And then you don't want them to grow up, but you kind of do. And you're just like, I love you so much. And it's like, if, if we as like sinful people as we are, like we are far from perfect, can love someone so unconditionally, imagine what God's love for you is. So when we love God, it's not like we're making this decision to say, oh, well, now I love you, Jesus. But it's like the irresistibleness, the pursuing that God pursues us with, his love, it's like the only reaction you have is to love him back because of how much God loves you. So when we talk about discipleship and being a follower of Jesus, what we're really saying is, 
You've already done everything for us. Now we simply want to live our life as an offering to you, showing you how much we love you back. So that's the first kind of true love. The second kind of love is this human love. And human love is tricky because it can be really good sometimes. Our relationships can be really great, but they can also be fragile and frustrating and they can end up hurting us. Psalm 34 verse 8 tells us, taste and see that the Lord is good. Because the psalmist knows that with just one small taste of the presence of God, you would keep coming back for more. It's like sugar. For some reason, when my mother-in-law was here, I kept going to get donuts for us. And in the first couple weeks of Everly's life, she would wake up a lot more in the middle of the night. And I would hold her, and what would I do at 2 and 4 a.m.? And 11 p.m. I just, I would just cut a little piece of donut every single, like, I feel like my clothes is tighter now. I've made peace with it for now. But it's like sugar. Like, like when someone asks you, like, why do you have a faith in, in Jesus? Say, because he's like sugar. And say, well, why is that? Because like when you've had a little bit, you want to keep coming back for more. When you truly are in the presence of Christ, you keep wanting to come back for more. And I want to just end with this last image this image of what it means to dwell. Again, we come back to, the, to David. He didn't write all the Psalms. That's why I say the writer of the Psalms or the psalmist. But I keep coming back to this idea, and, 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 and this is something that has served as a metaphor for myself, and maybe it'll help for you. There's this, and I didn't write this down in my sermon, but there is this passage in Psalms where David says, I would rather be a servant in the house of the Lord that have everything else in this world. That's a paraphrase. I would rather, listen, I would rather be a slave, a servant. I would rather clean the toilets, scrub the floors, make the food, do everything that Jesus, the master of the house needs. I would rather be a servant in the house of the Lord than to have everything else and live for all eternity without him. And that's the kind of question we need to ask ourselves. Would I rather simply be a servant in the house of God Or do I need more? And as you wrestle with that question this week, I just want you to pray, God, show me what it looks like to love you, just to love you for who you are. You see, that's the purest form of love, to love someone just because of who they are. You know, oftentimes, and I'm going to finish with this for real as I will, oftentimes in relationships, um, we say things like this. "Why, Why do you love me? And a lot of times we answer this, those questions with, well, because you make me happy, because you make me laugh, because, and a lot of it is really just, I love you because of what I get out of you. So here's for those of you who aren't married. When you ask the question, why, or, well, even if you're married, but you don't have a lot of options if you're married, but you say this, why do you love me? The right answer is, because you are who you are. Just because who you are, I love you. Not because I get anything out of this, but because of your person. You see, for us to truly love Jesus isn't because we want to get something out 
of this relationship with Jesus, which, by the way, we get so much out of a relationship with Jesus. No one's denying that. God gives us blessing upon blessing every single morning. New mercies are given to you. Jesus forgives you of your worst sins. Jesus gives you the assurance of salvation and eternity with life. Jesus has promised an abundant life to you. Jesus has promised to be a comforter. Jesus has promised to lead you into truth every single day. Jesus has promised to be there when you are going through the difficult moments in your life. Like, G- like a relationship with Jesus gives you more than you can ever have imagined. But if you're going into a relationship with Jesus just for those things, it's selfish. And so perhaps the prayer that we want to pray this week is, Jesus, teach me to love you for who you are.